Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly interview series where I get to sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. My guest this month is Phil Harrison. He is currently the vice president and general manager at Google on Google Stadia. So we're going to talk all about their streaming gaming service that's uh, launching right now. But Phil was also an executive for a long time at PlayStation and then at Microsoft for a bit, too. So lots to talk to him about. Enjoy. Have you always been a gamer, or or did you find that your path into the game in, games industry was was an unexpected one? I'm always curious. It was an unexpected career for sure, but yes, I've always been a game player and a game maker. I started with an accidental Christmas gift one holiday um, with a Commodore 64, nice, which had that incredible moment where you switched it on and it just said ready. And there was yeah. a blinking cursor. And that was just an invitation to go do something amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I think like a number of people of my generation, I started by typing listings in from magazines and making games that way. You then realize that the thing you've spent 14 hours typing in isn't very good. <laughs> so you then change it. So you learn a little bit of game design and a little bit of the principles of, you know, debugging code and things like that. And what really got me excited was graphics, how yeah. I could have something in my head that I could then, you know, with a few pixels, then turn into uh, a story or a character. What, uh, what, what games stood out from you, for you as a child, either, either on the Commodore or other platforms? I think there's a number of sort of seminal moments that I remember. I think going around to a friend's house and seeing uh, an Atari uh, 2600 for the first time, um, even before that... Um, what was um, the predecessor to uh, the Intellivision and Pong um, and just the paddle game uh, experience and just being able to control something on the television. That was like a magical moment. I think I was probably six or seven years old at that point. Yeah. But um, playing games on the Commodore 64 um, from some of the great game companies, I think I loved a lot of the LucasArts games yes. early on. Um, I love some of the early Activision games, Little Computer People, Little Computer People Discovery Kit. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, that, one is, that one is not familiar to me. Oh, you should check it out. It's a very, very simple idea, which was this notion of an AI that lived inside your computer. <laughs> and it was a little count. It was like a kind of visually rich Tamagotchi, where you had yeah. a character that you had to look after, you had to feed it, you had to kind of play with it and, and interact with it. And if you got... If he got bored, or she, actually, I can't remember the gender, but if they got bored, um, they would lean forward as if they were on the inside of your computer monitor <laughs> and cool. knock on the inside oh, of the glass. Good. And there was this really amazing sound effect, which you probably won't be able to pick out, but it just, yeah. yeah, it was just perfect. And I was like, that was great game design. So those kind of moments. And then um, from there, I managed to turn it into a little bit of a job on the side when I was a early teens doing graphics for friends who were making games. Um, my first public published work was on a computer called the Oric One, which absolutely huh. nobody will ever have heard of. That's, I cannot say I have, I'm afraid. Imagine an 8-bit computer with all the um, smart bits of a Commodore 64 taken away. Oh. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was basically uh, how it worked. Um, and, um, you know, I got paid £50, I think, for the graphics that I did, aged 14. And I thought, wow, this is, this is the future. Yeah, that had to... Did that just like crystallize it and make it real for you at that point? 
I think I was too young to think of it in terms of a career arc and, you know, I had no idea what kind of an industry, you know, I was getting myself into. But um, the idea of being a freelancer and being able to work on other people's games as a graphic artist and then as a game designer and then eventually as a producer um, was just thrilling. I loved it. Um, And so I uh, decided to take a risk and I I left school um, when I was 16. Wow. Um, Were your parents uh, thrilled about that? Oh, they were absolutely (laughs) delighted, as you can imagine. And and I'm not that far away from potentially the same conversation with my own kids. Mm. And so I can imagine that. You don't have a leg to stand on in that conversation. (laughs) I've never told them this story. So (laughs) (laughs) when they come to watch this, I am completely screwed. But um, no, it was uh, it was just a, a moment in my life where I realized I had an opportunity and I wanted to do it. And um, I kind of did a deal with them, which was, if it doesn't work out in a year, I'll go back and finish school. And then um, I wound the clock forward a few years, and I was living here in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and I was an executive at PlayStation, and I flew them out um, for a vacation. um, And I sat them down over dinner, and I said, do you remember that deal that I did you a few (laughs) years ago? Are we kind of... Square. Are we, good? <laughs> Are we good on this? And it was a, it was a, it was a fun moment. I'm always wondering about the parental reactions to to successful game designers and game industry figures because it's, it's especially to you know we're still the kids now would like your kids if they were to go into it you, I'm sure you'd be you'd be perfectly supportive and accepting of yes of course this is a a normal and and prosperous thing you can do but 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 you know our generation it's. I would imagine a lot of parents would have just thought, well, this is insane. What's my child doing with their life? Correct. And I'm not (laughs) sure I really gave them much choice, but um, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's um, I think also back then it wasn't an industry. It wasn't a business that you could really point to and say, you know, it has these kind of economic benefits and these kind of advantages or this kind of route to market. It wasn't a clear way for anybody to be successful in it, and yeah. so. Uh, but now that's obviously you know completely changed. Is um, so you, you got you actually got started. You kind of you fast forwarded to, to Sony there, which we'll get to. In yeah, a second, sorry, but, I jumped ahead uh, a little bit. Mindscape. Yeah, did a bunch of you were there a bunch of PC games, some even some Nintendo games, mm-hmm. NES games. What? Uh, so that's like the first professional. So were you maybe not even eighteen then? If you'd left, if you'd kind of gone out at sixteen. So there's a little bit in the middle where I worked for freelance for a bunch of um, UK-based uh, game development okay. companies um, and built up a little portfolio of work, which had some merit to it, I think, um, and then um, was approached. Now, I wrote a letter to the guy who ran Mindscape in the UK yeah. and said, hey, I'm a game designer. You know, Would you like to... Um, see my portfolio and he invited me down they were in a a beautiful location in the countryside south of london and i sat with him for half an hour and i walked him through my portfolio and his eyes kind of glazed over and he said look the honest answer is i don't understand a word of this um (laughs) would you like to come and work for me wow and figure this out for me and we hit it off his name's jeff heath he's still a friend today he's a wonderful mentor to me so um somebody who uh, gave me a real break when i was 19 that's astoundingly honest for someone in a, in a sort of hiring position like that. <laughs> yeah, and he was building a, uh, an organization in Europe. He was um, the European division of Mindscape, which is a very established, at the time, U.S. games publisher with, yeah. uh, with a lot of um, excitement around their Nintendo business. 
Um, and I spent a really fun three years there. Uh, well, I want to know next then. So how, how did you end up joining Sony then? How do you go from, from Mindscape and, and uh, Sony in the, at this point would be the pre-PlayStation days? Yes. In fact, the time uh, was a really interesting one in the history of PlayStation and Sony because uh, the relationship, I mean, this is well covered in the, in the lore of the, the games industry, but the relationship between Sony and Nintendo to build the original oh, PlayStation yeah. had just broken down. And so they were right at the beginning of thinking about how to build their own business as their own um, operator in the, in the games industry as their yeah. own platform. And so I got a call uh, from a friend who had uh, moved over to Sony in the US. And I got a call from a guy called Olaf Olofsson, who was running um, the electronic publishing business for Sony out of the US. And I met him at some ungodly hour of the morning at Heathrow Airport. It was the only time we could meet. At the uh, airport? Yeah, it was a bizarre interview. Were you flying anywhere? No, he was flying somewhere. Oh, okay. That makes and so sense. I, get, I get a call from his assistant like the day before saying, um, Mr. Olofsson will be at Heathrow Airport at like 6.20 tomorrow morning. Wow. Please meet him there. And I'm like, okay. Um, small sidebar story. I managed to get stung by a bee while cutting my lawn the night before, which was kind of weird. And then um, by... Where? Like, so was it like swollen on your face? No, it was, it was on my thumb. Okay. It was on my thumb. Um, and... Um, by uh, by seven o'clock, I had a job. Huh? It was a very very bizarre set of circumstances. All right. So the the CD-ROM add-on that Sony was going to make for Nintendo, were you involved in that at all? No, I was not. And that that was the project that had just finished before yeah. I joined the company, and it finished in rather acrimonious uh, circumstances. I remember reading about it. Yeah. And uh, the the vision was. Uh, the plan was that um, Sony would make um, a combined unit, which was a uh, Super Nintendo and a CD drive mixed together. Yeah. Um, Sony already made the sound chip for the Super Nintendo, so that was the thing that the cre in, yeah. created the relationship. In fact, Mr. Kutaragi, who founded PlayStation, was the engineer responsible right. for the sound chip. So that yeah. was the kind of thread in history. And then... Um, Nintendo would make a standalone drive um, with uh, supply components by Sony. Um, and then at the very last minute, for very complex business reasons, the uh, project was abandoned. And it was quite embarrassing for Sony at the time. And um, the team was given the permission to go and build a competing platform. And so I joined right at the perfect timing. I mean, it was not luck. I mean, it wasn't planned. It was complete luck. Do you think... Do you ever stop and think was was that uh, dissolving of that partnership the best thing that ever happened to your career, in a way? Yes, almost certainly. But actually, more more importantly than my career, nobody should really care about my career. Well, I think we it, I care. That's why you're here. Well, bless you. But I, <laughs> I think actually it was the best thing that ever happened for the industry because it stimulated a huge amount of creativity yeah. and innovation at the developer level and at the publisher level and at the economic level. Sure. And it, it transitioned an industry that was doing great but wasn't going to become a mass market business. And the decisions to add a disk drive um, put so much value back into the development community. Right, because the cost off of the good. cartridge. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, in the, it, some of the projects that I was involved with at Mindscape the physical cartridge cost $15 a unit. Wow. 
And if you make a mistake ordering too many, you are dead. And if you order too few, it took too long to uh, replenish supply. An equally bad problem in a totally different way. You could way, never right? get it right. Yeah. You were always doomed. Yeah. One way and or then the other. still, you know, Nintendo's got to get their, or, you know, the platform holders got to get their cut. Yeah, so it was so. it was very very expensive Oof. and, and un, unpleasant uh, business to be in. So <clears throat> you're at Sony. You, you had quite the rise up the company ladder, uh, which we'll, we'll get more into. You've been involved in every Sony hardware launch up through the PS3. Yep. And so I, I'm just curious now. You know, you've got ten plus years to look back on it. What what was uh was was there any that was your favorite that any launch that you remember like man that was that one was particularly fun or interesting in some way I think obviously because it was pioneering and breaking new ground PlayStation 1 was the thing that I look back on yeah. uh, with most fondness partly because of the product that we were building but also partly because of the team that we were constructing um when I joined the PlayStation group, which was called Computer Entertainment Project Number One, <laughs> I never found out if there was a Computer Entertainment Project <laughs> Number Two. But uh, when I joined that group, I think we were forty-five or fifty people worldwide, most of whom were in Japan. I was the first person outside of oh, Japan. Interesting. And then, um, obviously, when I left, I think we had more than five and a half thousand people. Wow! So yes, it was a pretty amazing growth. Um, but I think that moment of seeing the promise of a platform uh, delivered with amazing game experiences that um, you could see, and I've told this story before, but the moment when I went to Namco prior to the launch of PS1 and saw Ridge Racer, Ridge Racer up, yeah. up and running, you know, that was like, a oh, okay, actually, I think we're onto something here. Um, and at that very same meeting, they said, because that bit of the demo had gone so well, they said, we're working on something else. Would you like to come and have a look? And we're like, sure, sounds great. And it was Tekken. So, you know, seeing those two games within an hour of each other for the <laughs> first time was, uh, was pretty exciting. Um, and then I think, you know, when we got into the super heady heights of PlayStation 2, we realized the impact that we were having culturally and socially. The games that were really starting to, to hit their heights was, was so exciting. Yeah, what could... Could you have, I mean, the, the PS1 was a success. You're, you're doing the PS2, you, you know, the Toy Story graphics, Pixar graphics. <laughs> but I don't think we ever said that. Okay. I think it was somebody else who <laughs> <Fair> said that. Fair enough. <laughs> but, I mean, could, could, did you guys at all foresee the, the record heights that the PS2 was going to go, would ultimately hit? Like, I'm think, sort of curious how, how taken by surprise, if at all, the Sony team was by how, how well the PS2 did. I think we, we had a period in the early 2000s where PS2 was demand was outstripping supply and we were never in stock. Wow. And it was particularly uh, in the US and Europe. Japan, because they were closer to the factories, um, it was easier for them to have a, a slightly sure. more just-in-time delivery. But in the US and Europe, we were constantly out of stock. And there was one moment where we had a company meeting and... I forget the exact date, but we were 1% of Sony's people, 10% of Sony's revenue, wow. and 90% of Sony's profits. Well, look who's, yeah, who's, who's the, the golden goose now. That's right. crazy. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's actually now been repeated, I, th I think, more recently as well. So With the was, PS4, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. So uh, was, was, do you, was there a specific moment, do you think, that, 
with the PS2 or was it more of a, cause for me, I will tell you that I, I had a killer app moment with the, with the PS2. Cause I, I personally, I'd been a PC gamer from you know, Nintendo as a kid. And then I went through the 16 bit era. I had a couple of the 16 bit consoles, but doom turned me into a PC gamer, sure. which I was for, uh, for many years. And then what actually brought me back to console gaming, uh, was Grand Theft Auto three. Sure. That was, so I, were, did you have any sort of sense of, of that at the time? I mean, they were over on your side of the pond at the time as well. Like, is, did you guys have any idea that what, what that game was going to do? I think the, the honest answer is no. And I, I think that GTA 1 and 2, obviously a different f- format, you know, kind of yeah, top-down top down. view, um, but had very high reviews, very high quality, was, was showing some, some really innovative and in, in, strong innovation in terms of game design. But I don't think anybody could really have predicted um, the absolute impact that GTA 3 and then beyond would, would have. Sam may have a different view. Uh, I'm trying to get him in here. It's uh, it's tough to pin those guys down. <laughs> I'll ask him. He's... Please, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, any little any little bit of help is um, welcome. And I think yes, obviously, Grand Theft Auto had a, a a huge impact because the way that we marketed the platform was to make it an aspirational device, not to make it a toy, but to make it something that anybody of our age or you know younger could could enjoy. Yeah, and I think. That plus um, the rise of FIFA, on the, uh, particularly in Europe, Madden here in the US, sports games becoming such a powerful part of the right. industry. Um, games like Metal Gear Solid, you know, I think starting to, to really drive a huge amount of um, um, excitement in the industry. And so there was a number of, I think, franchises that just became part of people's lives. Yeah, it's uh, and and they still are all these years Correct. later. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's what's wild about it. So, we fast forward to the PlayStation Three. Uh, the as as the uh, PS Two was the the DVD Trojan horse in the living room. So too was the PlayStation Three attempting to do the same for Blu-ray. Yeah. When uh, when that sort of format war, nobody remembers now. Like it's such such ancient history. Uh, did, what was how was the format war between HD DVD and Blu-ray looked at within Sony? Like, was it just these guys? The other format has no chance. We've got like I'm sort of curious about that from your side as yeah. as being involved with with the PlayStation no, it was, business. It was a very um, important format to get right, and I think for various reasons, perhaps Sony feels a little bit more acutely aware of losing a format war from Betamax, Betamax VHS, and VHS. Yeah. So I think there was a little bit more focus on these things in the electronic side of the business. And um, I remember a number of meetings where there were, you know, pretty serious checks being written to incentivize certain movie studios to bring their catalog to Blu-ray right. first versus HD DVD. And it was pretty finely balanced for a few months. And then I might have misremembered it, but I think it was Warner Brothers who said, no, actually, we're all in on Blu-ray, and that kind of tipped the uh, the, the, the scale. Scales, yeah, I, I, remember it, I remember it being pretty obvious that Blu-ray was going to win because of exactly what you're saying. Like, the list was like, oh, well, there's just more and bigger support for, for Blu-ray. But um, with regard to the PS3, now, that, that was uh, sort of has been looked at by some, you may not feel this way, but as sort of Sony's um, little, little, little hubris going yeah. on. Um, 
what <laughs> did you guys have any idea that people were going to latch on to the uh, you know the 599 US dollars thing and and the you know the the uh, giant enemy crab from massive like did, did that did that whole unveil like did it catch you off guard after the PlayStation 3 reveal? Yeah, so I think there was there was two moments. I think the 2005 E3 where we showed the the platform promise got everybody very very excited. Yeah, and then once the reality hit home of just how expensive it was going to be, and um, I think some of the the reaction from from the audience was was justifiably. Um, concerned and it also coincided with the rise of the internet as a platform for um, users to really express their opinions and I think in some ways it caught many companies not just us you know off guard you know the 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 balance of power had shifted a little bit and um, we had to invest way more in in understanding our our users and their um, and their passions. Was there any internal concern or debate about that five hundred ninety nine dollar price point? I mean, yes, there was a there there, there was a four ninety nine model, I think, too. Uh, but what that was the was it the twenty gig hard drive, or I don't remember which one. Yeah, it was. Yeah, no, it but, was. You're right. It was the twenty. But you could barely like it was not the one that was really marketed or, or pushed, as I recall it. But was that that six hundred bucks? Was that was that a worry internally at all? It was a it was a worry because six hundred bucks was actually too cheap because the machine was so expensive to make. Yeah. Um, that and this is normal in a in a console business that the first few hundred thousand machines you make cost a ton. Right. And then you quickly come down the cost curve. Yeah. And, and you get into uh, into you know profit later. Um, but the first machines of PS3 were. Way more expensive than the five nine nine retail price that we charged. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I mean, I know you know that's not a new thing, as you said, but but to, <laughs> just the way you're phrasing it is. Now I'm curious what the what the actual figure was. Oh, uh, I, I'm not sure it's public information, and I probably shouldn't share it. Fair but, enough. But it, it would make your eyebrows shoot clear off the top of your head. <laughs> All right, then. Um, the. Uh, your favorite PlayStation games over the years. I mean, I, you've got a, you were so closely tied for so long. Uh, I'm sort of curious what some of your, your near and dear franchises were. So I think I, because I had a couple of different roles in my time at PlayStation, for probably the first half of my time, I was very much involved in all games, all platform. And yeah. so I was you know, really focused on bringing as many developers and publishers onto the platform as possible. And then... Um, from 2000 onwards was running studios and then eventually worldwide studios. And so there I was much more focused on our internal uh, teams. And I think um, personally, just because I'm a, a car enthusiast, Gran Turismo will always have a, yes. a, a place in my, in my life. Um, some of the more um, esoteric things that our team in Japan signed uh, will always be, I think, that recognition of art over commerce and i loved the fact that we we did those um um things like um parappa the rapper and uh, um jamalami and those games which i think um weren't necessarily the biggest commercial success but the very fact that they were on the platform was um was exciting um and then i think because they were 
more finely curated by my team. Um, a game like Little Big Planet probably is um, something that I always um, remember very closely. Awesome. Was um, the, the PS3? Was it? Was it a year late? That was always sort of the story. Was it supposed to launch alongside around the same time as the 360 in fall of 05? I don't know if that's that's a real story or just an urban legend. I think we always said winter, and the good news is that winter in the northern hemisphere is a sort of fairly broad uh, <laughs> yeah. spread. I honestly can't remember. Yes, it was it was later than I think we would have wished for. Yeah. Um, and the thing that actually slowed down the production on the hardware was down to a tiny component. It was the di- laser diode on the Blu-ray drive. Really? Yeah, it was like a five-cent component. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's- and was it a volume thing? Like, yeah. So, because, like, I know, you know Elon Musk talks about this with Tesla: is the assembly line can only move as fast as the slowest part. Right. And right? so, in, so it's in the this, same thing in a console. Yeah. In this particular case, the. The shift from red laser to blue laser was a was actually quite a sophisticated change in the way that the optical head on a um, drive worked, and it was a little bit of physics and a little bit of chemistry mixed together because it's really a crystal that you're making. Nice, and um, they just couldn't make enough. Huh. So um, I'm sort of curious because, of course, you would you would move over to Microsoft uh, before too long. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but how? How was Microsoft and the Xbox looked at from within Sony first in, when in the early PlayStation days, and then I kind of want to talk about it in the when the 360 came around as well. But starting sort of when the original Xbox launched and Microsoft, like it's it's been known now. It's the executives, past and present, told the story of well, yeah, we wanted we were going after Sony. We wanted to try and get yes. into that living room. So how did you guys at the time? Look at the original Xbox. So it depends on where you sat around the boardroom table in Japan. Literally. Really? It depended on where you sat. <laughs> because if you were on the European or the US side of the boardroom table, yeah. you'd be like, yeah, Microsoft is deadly serious and we have to be uh, on our best game to, to compete. Either The other end of the boardroom table, more Japanese side, were like, Xbox in Japan? No, it's nothing. And, and both so, were right. Correct. And so, <laughs> that's exactly right. And so as a result, there was a very spirited set of conversations that would go on. Um, and, you know, obviously Xbox became a phenomenal competitor and contributor to the, to the industry. So um, it, was, it was correct. So when, so when the 360 comes around and beats the PS3 to market by about a year, uh, 11 months, I think it was, and, and does very well... Are you guys freaking out at all, or what? What was the sort of mindset like in, in the? You know? No, I don't. No, nobody was freaking out. I mean, PlayStation Two was still the world's biggest selling console, even um, after PS3 uh, shipped. Um, so, you know, there was a from an economic point of view, from a business point of view, um, game companies were making money. Sony was making money. The retailers were making money. It was a, it was actually yeah. Everybody's everybody's in good shape. Yeah, I think from a, yeah, no, nobody was complaining. Put it that way. Um, but I think just from a from a competitive market share point of view, yes, of course, it became a much more um, uh, heated dynamic, and, and that's good. Competitions, are it, yeah, it brings thing. out the best in everybody. Yeah. And, and when Hopefully. they when they launch it four hundred for their you know, main, there was a three hundred dollar model too. Same thing, like with you guys had a cheaper one, but 
when they're at 400 and you know you're coming at 599, did that sort of, did, did that factor into the anxiety at all? Or were you more focused on, well, these are our costs and yeah, I think just, by that point you've made your choices in terms of yeah. cell processor yeah. and hard drive and GPU and yeah. all those things and you know you're just locked into a plan. You know that the plan's going to get better eventually, but yeah. it's a it's a tough one to begin with. So uh, Naughty Dog specifically, I wanted to ask you about them because you know they, they've always been talented. I'm sure you guys could always see that from the early days. But did you have any inkling that they were going to become what I think is fair to argue? a top five, maybe even top three developer on the planet? Yeah, my, I, my history with Naughty Dog uh, goes all the way back to 1996, actually, because it's my signature on the contract. Really? Uh, that signed, Jason Rubin? And- yeah, th- well, actually, the Naughty Dog uh, game was signed through a relationship with Universal Interactive Studios, um, which was part of Universal uh, Movie uh, Company. Yeah. And... Anyway, long story short, we did a deal with them, but it was actually um, the Naughty Dog um, game uh, that we were interested in because one of our technical account managers uh, had been down to visit them just as a developer would be visited by our teams from time to time. And he came back and he was like, oh my God, these guys are working on this character action game. It's I think it wasn't called Crash Bandicoot then. It's called, it was called something ridiculous. Some code name. Yeah, or... no, it actually had a, a, a name, but it was a ridiculous name. <laughs> I think this is this is known. I forget what it was. It was Strange marsupial. Yeah, it was jumping like, marsupial. It was Freddy the Fox or something <laughs> stupid. I forget what it was. But anyway, he came back raving um, and um, said, we have to sign this game. And um, he was right. And it was something that we ended up publishing directly. And that's obviously was started... Um, Crash Bandicoot and then Jack and Daxter series and then what we realized as the industry was growing up that we needed to transition Naughty Dog from being more you know cartoon focused to being something that was a little bit more realistic yeah and this was something that they wanted to do it wasn't like this was imposed upon them by Shu or myself but it was just like a realization that this was the trend that we needed to to get ahead of Um, and then uh, from that came Uncharted and then The Last of Us. Did, was that started? I don't think it, it no, came I, out I, before. It, was, was, were you I, gone by I, then? I left by then, yeah. Yeah. So were you sort of, when you played The Last of Us, were you just, were you, were you like, yep, that's Naughty Dog? <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I remember being deeply involved in some of their very early tech for procedurally driven animation. You know, looking at the way that they were thinking about um, character animation as being a combination of an artistic vision and then reacting dynamically to what was going on in the environment. So as you were running through a world, you know, you could be flinching and as something was shooting at you, the reactions that that took some incredible engineering to make that work. Um, and so I could see the investment that they were making there was going to yield some spectacular results. Is, uh, is Mark Cerny Sony's secret weapon? Is he like a one-man sort of genius that like it, it I've spoken to him a couple times he's he seems a little shy he has, doesn't seem to want to sit down and, and do this but he to me seems like almost their John Carmack at Sony I think Mark What's is your sense of him uh, he's I love Mark he's one of the smartest people I think I've ever met um, and he has a vision and a passion which is clear um, and he wrote Marble Madness Yes. So, you know, what's wrong with that? Exactly. <laughs> um, 
The PSP, I want to ask you about the PSP for a second, because that I remember being so excited for the PSP. I I had one at launch. Um, I had, I mean, Luminous was like, that was my favorite thing at the time. And then uh, there was uh, Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories, yeah. which, I, which I adored. Uh, what do you think happened there that made it successful, but ultimately not enough to stick around? You know, what do you think happened with PSP? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny um, thing where you look at PSP and then Vita as being somehow not successful. But PSP was 50, 60 million units. That's it's no slouch. Correct. I think <laughs> it's just when you're comparing it to 140 million units of a PS2. Yeah. There was also, I think in hindsight, you know, there was a, uh, a difficult um, business choice made around the uh, media format for PSP, you know, with yeah. the, the UMD. Yeah. Um, it was difficult for people to make and sell and distribute and uh, manufacture so you know i think that held us back a little bit um but were you involved in that at all about like the sort of when it came down to like well what what media format are we going to use for this thing and honestly i don't think there was a better choice at that time yeah but it was really um a moment in time where actually if psp had come out four or five years later and had been an entirely digital platform it would have been a completely different set of um uh realities but um Sony is a multi-headed beast. It has a music company to, to think about. It has a, a movie company to think about. And so physical media formats are, are an important part of its makeup. Or yeah, because at, at that point, there, uh, if I'm remembering my history correctly and getting the timeline right, there were the memory sticks that they, that they used in their digital cameras, right? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if like that was probably as expensive or more than the UMDs, if I were to guess. Yes. I mean, I, I'm not, not sure I remember the specifics, but the idea of using a cartridge as a format um, was really not leaning into Sony's strengths, which was disc manufacturing. So I think it would have been a bad choice. So when you're made the head of Worldwide Studios, 2005, is that... I mean, was it just sort of like another day of like, yep, I'm moving up, I'm earning... or? or do you did you do you recognize that the sort of gravitas of that in the moment of like wow I'm I'm overseeing all of this for the PlayStation. Yeah, we, so to answer your question, yes, of course I was very very proud and, and very happy for the team to have the recognition that to consolidate all of the studios into one was a yeah. really important strategic move for for Sony, and so to be given the, the chance to lead that was. Um, um, was a real honor and a real privilege. Um, we'd been working together in an informal capacity across Europe, Japan, and the US for a couple of years before that. So it was kind of a logical next step. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was on the cards, but um, um, it was a fun moment for sure. So what uh, what made you want to leave Sony and head over to Atari slash Infograms in 08? Because on paper... It seems like a bit of a curious move, right? Like, I don't know if they're, is it just a personal thing? Is it a, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious what, uh, what inspires you to do that. Yeah, I, there were two reasons. One, um, I'd been at Sony for 16 years nearly, and um, I had had a phenomenal time there. I loved my time at, at the company, and it, as you have pointed out, and um, been nice to discuss, you know, I, I went from boy to man, you know, for, uh, my time there. Um, and 
I realized that I was starting to repeat myself. I was starting to think, you know, we'd done PS3, we were planning PS4, yeah. and I was about to go into that next cycle. And to get deep into the cycle and then leave would be very bad. And also, short of moving to Japan, I had achieved everything that I could achieve um, realistically inside yeah. the, the company. Um, plus, um, I wanted to start a family. And if you are traveling once a month to Japan, that is not conducive <laughs> to any kind of you know, life outside of work. And you know, some other personal things that um, were, were driving that. Um, and then um, what I really wanted to do was to go plural which was to do more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a friend of mine in the industry, David Gardner, and I joined the board of uh, Atari, or the public company that owned Atari and Infograms. Um, and um, it was a time where we then started investing in some other games companies. We created a, a, an early uh, venture fund that was doing um, investing in uh, mobile uh, mm -hmm. startups, um, most notably was uh, Supercell, which uh, oh, okay. uh, turned out to be a, a very successful um, uh, mobile games company, as you know. Um, so you were an early. Were you an early investor in that, or you set it up? Yeah. Well, was, so why are you even working now? You can just <laughs> cash out and go home. You're all set. Because I love what I do. <laughs> no, it's true. We'll we'll talk a lot more about Google here in a few minutes too. Um, so when when you know, two years. On doing that, is it sort of just you kind of see the writing on the wall, or is it is it more of just like I've accomplished everything I can accomplish in this position? Yeah. So you mean on the being on the board of yeah. that company? Yeah. So uh, you also have to think about when that was. It was '08 and '09 in the teeth of the financial crisis yeah, true. On, a, on a global basis, and I learned a lot. Not necessarily the skills that I expected to be deploying. <laughs> uh, it was more about cost management than investment, um, and so. Um, I had a, a really good time um, as a plural investor. I, I also invested in um, or was on the advisory board of Gaikai, which actually is oh, an yeah. important moment, which I'll come back to as we talk about <laughs> Stadia. Um, and then um, Don Matrick and I have known each other for 20-something mm, years, maybe Actually, if I hadn't joined Sony in 92, I would have probably joined EA working for, for Don in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, 27 years or something, I've known him. And he would persistently and enthusiastically call me from time to time to try and get me to come and work for Xbox. And then uh, initially in the US, and then I said I didn't want to move. But by this point, we had a, our first son, uh, you know, who was very young at the time, and the idea of lifting a family to the other side of the world was not going to work. Yeah. So um, he called me and said, look, I've actually got an opportunity which I'd like you to consider in Europe. And so um, that was interesting. And we spent a bit of time talking about yeah, it. Heading uh, up all the studios over yeah. there, right? So it, so, was, it was great. Uh, yeah. Um, was it, I don't, I don't know if this is something if like I'm just projecting this as a, as a fan and you don't look at it this way, but did it feel weird at all? Kind of crossing over to the, you know, signing with the other team as it were, or is that is that just something that like gamers think about, but you've got, you're just like, well, no, it's a career move. That's. <laughs> um, I didn't really think of it as a career move. It was really the, the things that drive me are, can I make a difference? Can I work with people I love and respect and, and care about? And um, 
can we move the needle forward? You know, can we move the, the industry yeah. forward? And so those were the things that I was thinking about. I'm well aware that there was a lot of um, memes around, you know, me being some kind of uh, uh, spy on the inside, <laughs> which was uh, quite funny to a few of us at, uh, at times. Um, but yeah, that's just that's just great fandom, I guess, in the industry. So you were, you were at Microsoft from kind of the tail end of 360 yep. to the early Xbox One era. Um, so I want to bring up a couple of those that, the projects from that era. Rise was a, it was a day one launch title for the Xbox One. Fan favorite, kind of a cult hit, if you will. I really enjoyed that game, flaws and all. Uh, was, I, I just got to put this to rest for Xbox fans out there. Sure. While you while you were there, was there any, ever any talk of a sequel to that game? Do you know I don't think there was. No, okay. Um, and the, if I remember correctly, that game actually started life on the 360. I think was, I think I remember that and too. And was moved to the Xbox One um, somewhat later in its um, uh, development cycle. And um, I think if there was an interest in a sequel. Um, I'm not sure that the developer uh, was in a position to do it. Yeah, Crytek went through some strange times, I guess would be fair to say. So that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's your phrase, not mine. Yeah, um, but they're still they're 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 here, they're alive, they're going. Um, you know, before I, this just popped into my mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack for a second. We had gotten wind. I'm curious, what were there any real last minute uh, names for like? Sort of the short list of names for the Xbox One console after after you'd arrived because there's one on that. I want to hear it from you first before I, I'll tell you what what I had heard was almost the name of it. Um, so I've only ever known it as Durango, right? The project the project name, name yeah. or Xbox One. Okay, um, and. I know that the team probably considered many other names, um, but I was not privy to the okay. to the shortlist. I had heard in, in Xbox Infinity was almost was like a real. Yeah, I've link. heard that too, okay. but I'm not sure whether I've heard it from inside or yeah. outside of the company. <laughs> kind of- Fair enough. I got to figure like you're the perfect person to ask while I'm while you're here. Fable Legends, real quick. You know that as as a I'm a longtime Fable fan. That game kind of broke my heart because. I didn't like it, and it ultimately led to the destruction of that studio. Now, you may disagree with me on sort of the cause correlations of that, but um, what do you, was Fable Legends a mistake, do you think, in hindsight? Would a more traditional Fable sequel have been a better way to go? Yeah, I mean, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty vision, sure. and, and I'm not going to make any kind of flippant remark about any time where a studio gets closed and people lose their jobs. Yeah. Because it's a terrible moment. It's horrible. In, in, regardless of whether you're a fan of the games or the studio, just any, anybody who would be um, out of work as a, as a result of a corporate decision, which obviously was made long after I left. Um, I think where Fable Legends had the best of intentions was to create an ongoing service experience yeah. where you could create to you know an experience that would then grow with players and, and almost a little it. before it's time maybe yeah. maybe um and i think that there are other examples that are doing it better now um that maybe would have been you know more effective proxies or or examples um but also the studio was not 
really in the right place at that time to go build a very, very rich uh, single-player RPG. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure it had a, a huge number of other options in, in front of it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what, what were the differences between Sony and Microsoft in your experiences? As game companies, you sat pretty high up at both. What were sort of the... Would, would you think of any kind of key differences or... Or even similarities between the two. Um, the food wasn't as good when I went to Redmond as it was going to <laughs> Japan. That would be one difference. Uh, I love Japanese food, so that's slightly an, an unfair <laughs> statement. I think one of the things that was very obvious to me um, early, actually even before joining Microsoft, is that say what you like about the company, but the people at the top of Xbox all play games and all love games. Yeah. And so that was clear. You know, you would you would come in on a Monday morning, and there would be a conversation, over, you know, around the meeting room table about the experience that people had had playing together on Sunday night. Yeah. And I thought that was fantastic, and it was top to bottom. And you know, I think Phil Spencer, in particular, um, was driving that. But it was across the it was across the the company. There was a a passion for the culture of games and what that could mean for the world. How do you think Sony uh, has uh, has been doing this generation? What do, you, what do you see from them now as an outsider? And Microsoft, too, I'm curious. I think that they're, they're both doing great. I mean, I think that Sony, from a pure business point of view, has, has done phenomenally well with PlayStation 4. Um, it's great to see some of the um, success of their internal studios products uh, and experiences that I may have, you know, had an early, you know, hand in um, come to life, which is fun. Um, I think what Xbox is doing with um, the shift to thinking about creating value in a subscription is interesting. And so everyone's innovating. Everyone's trying to lift the industry, yeah. which is great. Nobody's resting on their laurels. Nobody sat there thinking, oh, I'll just wait this out and, <laughs> and wait for the next generation to come along. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago, I want to just circle back to it real quick before we, f- yes, finally talk about Stadia, I promise. You're, you're not here to, to reminisce about the past. Uh, that's just, that's for my benefit. Uh, we'll talk Stadia. But you, know, you mentioned Little Big Planet, And, you know, that's, that's such a, an interesting game. It's, it's maybe one of the most successful uh, player-driven games ever made, certainly on a console as well. And was there sort of an interesting story of how that came to be? Because I would imagine, I mean, you mentioned Parappa and some interesting sort of uh, art over commerce things that that you and your team had had uh, brought, helped bring to market. But was Little Big Planet a tough sell internally? Like, I'm sort of curious about yeah, that the, one. It, it, there's, there's a few stories to it. I mean, first of all, that that whole thing came about because a guy who worked for me called Pete Hawley spent a lot of time in a pub in Guildford with Alex and Mark from Lionhead at the time. Yeah, so, so it's kind of a are. weird yeah, circularity right to this. And persuading them over many pints of beer, <laughs> over many, many months to think about leaving and starting their own company funded by Sony. Yeah. And um, they were eventually persuaded to do that um uh they set up um we funded them and they came in to do their first pitch of the game which is to this day the greatest game pitch i have ever 
seen really? in my life. Little Big Planet is the greatest game pitch you've ever heard. And it, it is not the game that you ended up playing. Oh, okay. It was a very different kind of experience. But because just this gives you an insight into how Alex in particular works, rather than use PowerPoint, which is what everybody else on the planet at that time used <laughs> to communicate an idea, he wrote his own interactive version of PowerPoint so that the game was playable through the presentation. So good. It was just mind-blowing. <laughs> and it, it, that told me enough about the way they think and the way that they want to innovate and the, the way they want to challenge you know, conventions. And what became Sackboy looked nothing like Sackboy at that yeah. point, but it was enough of an idea that we got very excited. We, I think we had an hour-long presentation booked and it went on for like four hours or wow something. it was just the most exciting creative innovative time we then spent i think one or two years incubating it and then we revealed it to the world in 2007 at, uh, at gdc and uh have you been surprised at some of the things that people have done with little big planet ne- never under Never underestimate how much spare time somebody has to go and really finesse. And, and talent, too. Oh, There's amazing. so many people doing crazy stuff. Well, also, the, the tool chain was not so sophisticated, but it was reasonably powerful. But the amount of innovation and iteration that was there was just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah it was very exciting. So now, well, you find yourself at Google. It's, you've been there about two years. Yep. And uh, as, as the, by the time this airs, Stadia is launching. It is, it is going to be heading into the market. So... How has the, the ramp up to this been compared to a traditional console launch from your perspective? It's fundamentally different in so many ways and very familiar and similar <laughs> in, in others. Um, so obviously we're building a cloud-based streaming platform that takes a AAA game from our data center to any screen in your life. So yeah. that fundamental promise is there. Last night, the reason I'm a bit bleary-eyed, I'm sat at home playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider in 4K, 60 frames per second, sat on my couch with no console. Nice. On, uh, now, what device are you, are you sitting there? What, what's your preference? Do you do a tablet? Do you do a phone? I was playing on my TV. TV? Okay, yeah. so you're just blasting at the TV. Yeah, playing on my TV. Nice. And it's perfect. I mean, it was just the most fantastic experience. I got to the point, I haven't played the game before. It's the first time I've actually had a chance to play it. I don't know if you've played it. But. I mean, I've played Tomb Raider on the console, not on Stadia. Okay, I but. actually haven't had a chance to try Stadia yet myself. So I'm eager to do so. We should address that. I think I'm okay. talking to the right person. Yeah, I might be able to, to hook um, that up. <laughs> so I, I know a guy, as yeah. the expression goes. But um, yeah, we, uh, we, there are... Um, different ways to reach different devices. So um, Chromecast is what you use on your TV, uh, and it streams at 4K up to 60 frames per second. Um, Chrome browser on your um, PC, uh, yeah. desktop, laptop. Um, and then uh, Pixel 3 and Pixel 4 phones um, initially. We'll expand that uh, later. Uh, I have to ask you a very selfish question. I'm going to waste the audience's time, but I'm just going to do this. You and I both drive Teslas. We do. Uh, the browser, the web browser in the car is Chromium. It is. I've been asked this by my Tesla podcast audience, so I'm just going to put this to you right now. Google Stadia in a Tesla over the LTE connection. Is this a possibility? I think 
You can say no. No, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. Okay. I think whether it would be, <laughs> I'm not sure it would be a great experience over LTE. Yeah. But I think if you had, um, if you were sat in your garage on Wi-Fi, then yes, it would be an amazing <laughs> experience. But um, uh, yeah, it would be a possibility. Okay, that is good to know. I'm, uh, I'm going to file that away for later. I'm going to hold you to that. Um, okay, so with Stadia, seriously, I'm, I'm the thing about Stadia that I've found in my position as a, a games media person is I feel like, it, and I'm curious what you think here, is, is educating customers one of your biggest challenges? It's sort of explaining exactly what this is because it's not a physical thing. Is, is education a, a big thing for you? I think uh, the most important thing is to try it for yourself. Um, and um, when we're done here, I'll go show you um, what it is. Um, I have a controller in my bag, and a, I have every game on Stadia in my bag yeah. because it's on it's the in cloud. the cloud, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so I think there is a um, completely understandable um, uh, skepticism from players who have not seen it, who have not had the chance to play it. Yeah. Uh, but once you get to see it and once you get to play it, you realize that this is a very strong direction of travel for the future of the industry. Uh, where is the weirdest place that you have experimented with Stadia that you've, you've played so far? Bus stop, train station, middle of the country, in a, on a farm... Um, I'm curious. Actually, yeah, good question. I did go up uh, last year during the Project Stream test. So Project Stream was our um, uh, pre-launch trial that we ran in partnership with Ubisoft with Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And so uh, we launched that in uh, actually about a year ago today. It's kind of October time. Um, And a weekend or so afterwards, I was up in um, Yosemite. In a in a lodge which had um, very rudimentary Wi-Fi, yeah. And I just thought, oh, I'll give this a try. I'll just see if it <laughs> a little, works. A little testing, a little yeah. user testing, yeah. Worked perfectly, flawlessly, nice. and I was a long way from anywhere. You know, it was even just keeping the lights on was a challenge. <laughs> um, and so I think you know that access to the internet is obviously rising everywhere. You know, we've eighty percent of U.S. homes now have access to gigabit Ethernet. Um, in the UK, internet speeds have increased by 25% a year for each of the last three years. So, you know, there's a, there's a very, very rapid increase in, in internet uh, reach and performance, which will lift this. Do you anticipate most users are going to play this at home as sort of a console-like experience on a television? Or do you think it's it's going to be more of a, of a mobile experience? I'm sort of- Initially, it's going to be in the home or where okay. you have access to uh, a, a Wi-Fi or, or stronger you know, internet uh, signal that would come over from an ISP. But 5G is not that far away. And so 5G, I wanted to ask you about that. 5G yeah. will be a, a future unlock. Um, but right now, we are um, uh, a Wi-Fi and more traditional ISP-driven experience. Because it's funny, when, when I think about Stadia, that's actually what I think about is a mobile usage. Right. I think it's because I associate the home with, well, I'm going to play my console right. there. So I guess how do you convince somebody that's got a console to, to use this in their home? I think there are two things that we 
believe strongly will be uh, exciting for, for gamers. One is the quality of the experience. The, the power that we are putting into the data center yeah. to power the games dwarfs any uh, console that is available today. Um, substantially greater than the vast majority of, of PCs maybe are the you know absolute top you know water cooled type uh, right. PCs. Um, so fundamentally, we are delivering a richness of CPU, GPU, and experience that just cannot be done realistically on a, at a mass market today. Yeah. Um, and you, as the gamer, get to choose where you have that experience. The same game, the same experience moves seamlessly from your TV to your PC to your laptop to your phone and anywhere in between. And so that modality of being able to say, well, actually, I'm going to complete this game somewhere else in the home or, you know, my family wants to use the big screen TV and I can carry on playing without interruption um, is a real transformation for the way that games are are played. Um, Plus, because the game is now using a data center to power it, the amount of tools and technology that are available to the game creator uh, really breaks the, the, the mold. So uh, the, the Stadia controller, yeah. which, uh, again, I haven't experienced yet, but... Wait one there. I'll get All it right. for you. <laughs> All right. The Stadia controller, which I magically now have here... Uh, we had a feature on this earlier this month as part of our IGN first coverage package on Google Stadia, and it's you can see sort of all see all what went into the making of this. It feels good. It's it almost feels kind of like a uh, a little bit of a hybrid almost of a DualShock and a and an Xbox controller, kind of little elements of both, maybe even a little Nintendo thrown in there, like kind of a uh, nice mix of the three. What or how many iterations did this go through? Uh, about a hundred. I believe uh, it. Uh, from uh, the original first idea, uh, and Jason, who uh, is the designer, uh, who deserves all the credit for, for a really beautiful design, he started watching people play games um, by observing how the fact that people don't always hold the controller the same way. Hmm. Um, and it, once you get that insight and watch other people play games, you will realize that actually that's true. That depending on the size of your hand, the kind of game How do you're you hold the controller. Well, fundamentally <laughs> like this, but the way yeah. you put your butt, your fingers okay, on the yeah, buttons. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Some people use the pads of their fingers. Some people use that's the true. Yeah, finger. all right. There's a lot of different ways. It's funny. I never really thought about it. So that's why we have smart designers like Jason thinking about <laughs> this. And he got inspired by the way that chefs in professional kitchens use knives. Oh. And there's a video which we launched, which I would recommend uh, you and uh, your viewers take a look at, which shows the thinking of this, which is the idea of a professional chef's knife has a very um, simple handle, which allows the chef to hold the knife in a number of different iterations. The kind of knives that you and I buy in the supermarket have a grip that forces you to hold it in one way. Yeah. And so he was inspired by the professional knife being able to be changed in shape. And what he actually did for the first design was to bend a chef's knife (laughs) and then create the mold and create the idea of something that was rounded and then iterated and iterated and iterated. And then this was born. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, Let's pretend this doesn't exist because like a year ago it didn't probably. 
Actually, it did. All right. Well, Near two enough. years ago. Two years ago. <laughs> um, uh, if you're DualShock or Xbox controller, mm-hmm. if you had, if this didn't exist and you needed, you needed a Bluetooth controller yeah. to get on Stadia with, what are you reaching for? Neither. And the reason it's neither is because um, we built Wi-Fi into the controller so that this is the computer that is actually right. communicating It's going right direct. to the cloud, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's cool. And um, that is a significant innovation. It allows us to build the Assistant into it, the Google Assistant into it. it allows us to have a very sophisticated capture um, capability. And we have some really great plans for the future as to how we will expand that. Um, we have a microphone built into it. Nice. You know, there's a number of things that we decided as first principles we would do differently. Actually, much of which predates me uh, joining the team. Fantastic. Uh, my final question for you, Phil Harrison, is this. What, what do you hope that people take away from Stadia? What is your ultimate goal with it? That we have a game platform for everyone that it's a game platform that um, does not require the purchase of a multi-hundred dollar uh, console or potentially thousand dollar plus PC to enjoy the latest, greatest games. And that you can enjoy those amazing game experiences on any screen in your life, just at the click of a button. That you can discover your favorite games through your favorite YouTubers or through your friends a game ultimately is just a link and that can then be shared seamlessly through whatever mechanism you choose. And that the games on Stadia will deliver an experience that will make people smile. And that's what I ultimately focus on is delivering a great experience for gamers. I feel so. Uh, we've talked about the service. We've talked about this controller. Tell me a little bit about the games that are available now and on the way soon. We've got some uh sort of third-party AAA titles, but then some original content coming as well. Exactly. So, uh, as you know, we formed Stadia Games and Entertainment, which is our first-party game studio headed by Jade Raymond. Um, She's announced her first studio in Montreal, but more to come. Um, And we have over 40 games have now been announced for our launch window, which is between now and um, the early part of the new year. Um, And some of the biggest game publishers on the planet are uh, announced with uh, games. Uh, over 20 uh, publishers now have announced titles on, on Stadia. Um, we're giving every player uh, who signs up uh, and is um, uh, buying uh, our Founders Edition and our Premier Edition um, a uh, three months of uh, Stadia Pro, which is our subscription. Uh, and included in that is the full Destiny 2 Shadowkeep experience, nice. which is absolutely phenomenal at 4k 60 frames per second they've done a great job with that um and i think for for me what i'm excited about is that we've got some of the most demanding games in every category you know we've got mortal kombat 11 a highly competitive fighting game yeah very low latency twitch input like you got to be precise correct we've got shooters in the form of borderlands and obviously destiny we have sports with nba uh, 2K20, and they have done an amazing job uh, with that. Just the production. There are there are times when you turn your head and you're like, "Am I watching basketball or am I watching?" Again? I know that game's crazy. With, they've done yeah, a phenomenal job animations. with that. Um, and uh, we have racing and some puzzle games and every genre um, covered. Um, and then some some big hitters coming in 2020 with Cyberpunk uh, 2077. 
uh, Watchdogs from Ubisoft and Doom Eternal uh, from Bethesda. And then um, the Tequila Works was one of your original games. Uh, Guilt, is that the That's name of it? That's correct, yeah, that, yeah. I love their stuff. That game looks really, visually looks great, and like the, the, the premise of it seems super cool, too. It is, and that's one of the things that I was excited about with, with Stadia was the chance to get back to that wave of innovation that we saw 20-odd years ago with smaller games as well as the big AAA games given space and given an opportunity to be discovered by players and so that's what I'm so excited about fantastic and then Orcs Must Die coming up too all kinds thank of thank you for stuff. remembering all the games I, you know, I, hey, re- I do my homework as best I can on this on this show but Phil thank you so much pleasure this was a real pleasure uh, Phil Harrison the Vice President and General Manager of Google Stadia uh, he's a big deal at Google and he has taken the time out of his life to come on down here while he's trying to launch a platform so Thanks for making the time, Phil. Uh, For more from the best, brightest, and most interesting minds in the games industry, I've got a new episode of IGN Unfiltered for you every month. Check it out on IGN, on YouTube, or on your favorite podcast service as well.